Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law, and we hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. In this episode, we're going to talk about mediation, and I'm delighted to be joined by Tony Allen. Tony is widely considered as the doyen of clinical negligence mediation, although he has much wider experience of mediation in other areas of dispute as well. He is a former long-standing director of CEDA, the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, and is a CEDA Chambers mediator. He became a CEDA-accredited mediator in 1996 and joined CEDA full-time in 2000, and he's a lead member on CEDA's Mediator Skills Training Course and has trained mediators around the world. Since 1999, he's been featured as a leader in the field in the Chambers Directory, that has rated him as, quotes, clearly the best mediator in the UK for personal injury and clinical negligence. So, Tony, welcome. Thank you very much for participating in this episode of Debrief. Thank you for inviting me, Nigel. Most of those listening uh, will be interested predominantly in clinical negligence disputes. And I've seen your work in mediations in clinical negligence disputes on a number of occasions. But can you just explain... It's an existential question. What, what is mediation? Mediation is um, a process in which the parties to a dispute can come together in an entirely confidential environment to have a conversation which will have no adverse consequences for them, whether it's um, if it doesn't settle, in which uh, a, a trained mediator makes that conversation possible and uh, facilitates, uh, in various different ways, uh, conversations between teams, either directly across a table or uh, by walking from one room to another, each party having their own private room. Uh, it, that's the way that uh, people discover, because it's private and confidential and off the record and subject to a mediation agreement which gets signed in every case, uh, they feel free to send signals to each other that might perhaps be more scope for agreement than they might be prepared to admit on the record in pleadings or in correspondence. If it's not too embarrassing, could you say what sort of skills or characteristics should a good mediator have? Well, I hope... um, quite nice with people and relaxed with people. I, I, I uh, find myself, of course, dealing with extremely painful cases, um, and, and these can be upsetting both for um, patients and their families and, indeed, clinicians. Um, my style tends to be rather a light style, but it's, I find it helps people to believe that they can have conversations which are effective and um, valuable, even with the occasional smile. So I hope that my style makes it possible for people to relax into the process. I think you have to understand the process too and the various options that there are, how one might um, mix joint meetings with everyone, with joint meetings with the legal team, or sometimes joint meetings with just the hospital and the 
patient or family, uh, with private meetings and going from room to room on a sort of shuttle diplomacy mm-hmm. basis. And were you a lawyer before you? Yes, I was. I, I I was in private practice for just over thirty years, doing uh, both claimant and defendant personal injury work uh, in my time, uh, plus all sorts of other things like criminal and, 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 and landlord and tenant and so on, and claimant uh, per, um, clinical negligence work as well. Um, bumped into mediation in the mid-90s and um, not to put too fine a point, fell, fell in love with it as a, mm. as, a, as a process which I could see, I hope, could assist in, uh, in, 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 in that kind of dispute and took several of my insurance clients at that stage, long since been subsumed into other greater companies, into their first mediations of personal injury cases where I was acting for them rather than being a mediator. So probably it was unusual then for lawyers to become full-time mediators, a little bit more common now. Are are most mediators, certainly in the clinical negligence field, former solicitors or barristers? Not necessarily. I think if I cast my mind through them, most of them have got a legal background. Um, Certainly the ones at CEDA have been solicitors or barristers, sometimes non-practicing barristers. Some have come in from from, uh, healthcare. um, uh, And and, and broadly speaking, but there's no restriction on Mm. that. A, a, A mediator does not have to have a legal qualification. What they do need to do is to understand the process well. And there's an accreditation and training process to become a... It's a, is that a, the term fully accredited mediator? Yes, CEDA accredits mediators and its accreditation is recognized really all around the world. Uh, we're currently running a course in Washington, D.C. for American mediators to get CEDA accreditation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and certainly we have gone to some extremely esoteric places like Mongolia, Armenia, Egypt, um, Rwanda, a huge variety of um, places where they have been interested in that. But in this country, CEDA accreditation is regarded as being a, 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 a well worthwhile accreditation to get. It's a five-year course. Indeed, we're just introducing a, a clinical negligence case study for people to role-play as part of their assessment uh, because of the growth of this field. Yeah. Um, as they'd say on the BBC, other providers are available absolutely I mean, there are <laughs> of course there are. but uh, but do you have to as a mediator would you have to belong to an organization like cedar or another well oddly provider? enough no uh, mm. i mean there is registration under the civil mediation council mm. uh, available to anyone who meets their requirements um, but it is at present an unregulated profession and in effect the marketplace decides mm. who does well and who doesn't so over the over 20 years you've been practicing as a mediator in clinical negligence disputes how has the use of mediation changed over that time well it has become immensely um available in clinical claims um one of my jobs at CEDA was to try and grow it uh, I, I i did mediate my first clinical negligence claims in the late 90s 1990s uh, under a, a, the original rather small and um, weakling pilot scheme that was set up at that stage where only 12 cases got through and i was involved in mediating two of those and that made sense to me as a process for the people who were involved in it, uh, both for claimants and, and, and clinicians. Um, but it never really got going. Um, and, and, and I mediated as much in, in Ireland and 
indeed once in, in South Africa, uh, as in this country for really up until about 2014. And what happened then was that the NHS Litigation Authority, as it was then, NHS Resolution, with its um, quite significantly changed name, uh, decided to run a pilot uh, and put something like 50 cases into mediation. Uh, they um, assessed that pilot and decided that it was indeed a good process to offer and um, established a permanent scheme as from 2016. And since that time, there have been a very substantial number of mediations. Um, I think they've done something over 500 now uh, in the course of the last um, two or three years. Uh, I certainly have never been so busy doing them. And it, it's got to the stage now where, I, in effect, I can say I'm a specialist clinical agents mediator and I don't do the other sort of stuff I used to do. Yeah. And the pilot scheme originally that NHSR started was focused on smaller value it did. cases. Is uh, that, it that's was, no longer the position? No. Um, it, it, it looked at cases where they, it, it thought there was high emotion, low value. That was what mm. actually mm. was intended to be covered. It was never actually that limited, and there were still some pretty big cases that uh, mm. emerged. But now um, there is really no ceiling on value. I have mediated a number of cerebral palsy claims, um, both towards the quantum hearing, but perhaps more surprisingly, um, before liability has been uh, established, um, breach and, and causation. Uh, and um, this has involved you know, multi-million pound claims being settled uh, at or shortly after mediation. Is there something about clinical negligence disputes that you think suits or that makes them suitable for mediation? Very much so, um, because um, there's been research done over the years, even that very small pilot back in the 1990s um, clarified what had been suspected, that, that there are lots of things that claimants would like to have besides monetary compensation. Um, they like to have an apology, they like to understand what went wrong and why. And perhaps above all, they want to have reassurance that lessons have been learned. And I've certainly seen some extremely powerful uh, instances where where the defendant NHS Trust has gone to a lot of trouble to explain to the uh, family uh, what it has done by way of changes of procedure in order to reflect the learning that had come from a, a, a tragedy for that family. And, and the impact that it has on families is, is, is absolutely palpable. Um, uh, so uh, that is something that mediation can deliver. Can, uh, I always uh, consider and discuss with lawyers before the day whether that kind of interest is there uh, amongst the claimant team uh, because that affects who might or might not be at the mediation. Uh, and, and and I'll always make quite sure that at the mediation we, we deal with the human issues as well as the medico-legal issues. Uh, and time and time again, it becomes very clear that the claim that claimants appreciate that is being handled. Um, they take up off, uh, offers to have meetings again with the trust later. 
um, exchanges take place actually at the trust, which uh, help them move forward. And none of this can be obtained through pure litigation. Mm -hmm. uh, a judge can't order anyone to apologise or to say what lessons have been learned. It's not an issue in a in, in, in a trial. Uh, nor is it the sort of thing that necessarily gets attended to in a roundtable meeting or when you decide whether or not to accept a Part 36 offer. These are all things that... I make sure, certainly, get talked about and put on the agenda for mediations because I am sure it, people value it. I suppose uh, something like an apology has to be very carefully handled because done in the wrong way, it, it can seem almost offensive or oh, insulting. Yes. The kind you. of, I'm yeah. really sorry that you feel annoyed <laughs> about it is not a good uh, yes. way of apologising. Yeah. But I've seen some very well thought through and extremely well received apologies not just actually from a, a, the, the clinician in the frame if I can put it that way but delivered extremely well by counsel who uh, because what will happen at the mediation is when everyone's ready for it and prepared for it there'll be a, a joint meeting where everyone will sit around the table and introduce each, themselves to each other so everyone knows who is there and why and then there will be um, exchanges across the table uh, at which uh, unusually um, uh, parties can look at each other and have a conversation. Mm. This is what I encourage them to do and to, and to think about carefully and to prepare carefully for. And, and, and sometimes you will find the claimant reading out a statement to discuss or to, to, to clarify the impact of what events have transpired and how it's made a difference to family life and you can see how this really strikes a chord with the defendants who are listening to it who perhaps till that time have been dealing with this as a kind of yeah. a legal case without any human labels attached to it um, or, or, the, or the depth of feeling behind it emotion comes into it uh, I don't think law courts handle emotion terribly well but I I, I claim for mediation that we do handle, we accommodate it, we we don't fear it, we, if necessary, encourage it, we join in on it in a, in, in, in a strange sort of way, but we certainly allow it because we know that this is one of the things that drives people. It also makes it possible to do something about perceived power imbalance because if, if, if someone is brave enough funded by or advised by a good legal team to take on the NHS or a hospital, a local hospital trust. It takes a fair bit of commitment and courage to do so, and it must feel very often like taking on a large, faceless organisation. When we get to the mediation and that faceless organisation turns into three or four mm. quite normal-looking people sitting on the other side of a table who show themselves willing to listen and to say the right things to people, it really does help, I think, to even things out and, and to make people feel comfortable and, and, and really to exploit the usefulness of the encounters that we can arrange. Ultimately, if litigation proceeds all the way to trial or, or even... Even not, it does come down to money as well as these yes, other things you've been course. talking about. Is is mediation suitable for any kind of dispute? So if it's a money only dispute, if it's quantum, because liability has been agreed. Or? Certainly, um, and, and it's a it's a rather different discussion that that goes on in a courtroom. I mean, in many clinical evidence cases, this is oversimplifying, it's an on-off switch. Uh, the judge either finds in favour of the claimant or on, on, on breach of duty or the, or the defendant. What mediation can accommodate 
is both debates and uh, and also private reviews by each team of the risks of not getting what they want to do, what what, what they hope for through through a trial, and 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 this applies very much to the way you value a case. Uh, if you are only going to win a case seven times out of ten, then that might suggest that uh, uh, roughly 70% of its value is is a settlement value worth considering. Uh, there will be occasionally those who think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for broke. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means perhaps that three times out of ten they're not going to get anything at all. And on the whole, I think people, uh, lay clients, are relatively risk-averse and, and, and certainly want to be very careful before they throw up the um, the certainty of something now rather than the prospect of anything better, mm-hmm. possibly muted by the fear of something worse, mm-hmm. um, at the mediation. And, and unless until you have that kind of conversation where that can be explored, but without any conceivable pressure to settle, uh, and with legal teams there to say, you can do better than this, mm-hmm. uh, I do not advise you to settle on this basis. But we find now quite often um, where there are real issues about breach of duty and causation that we can uh, that parties will negotiate a settlement at a percentage rate of whatever quantum yes. is going to be, yeah. even in very very big cases. And even even you've had mediations even in cases where, for example, there might be periodical payment. Yes. Orders at the end of it. So yes. very, very large cases. Large well, cases, yeah. periodical payments. Yes, I can think of one where the the, the, the capital value of the claim was in excess of twenty two mm. million, mm. Um, and 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 in the course of um, the mediation, which actually was relatively quick, um, and and the opportunity to sit back and do some sums after the mediation, which each side did, it settled for a, a, a sizable lump sum and pretty substantial PPOs, and also provisional damages as well. We, we there are occasions where. Where it, this case, particularly, I'm thinking of, um, it was negotiated on the basis that there would be a right to claim provisional damages oh, now as well. You've taken me by surprise now. <laughs> I, was, I am surprised to hear that, but that's very interesting. Just can we, can you talk me through the the process of a if there's such a thing as a typical yeah, mediation? Sure. But first of all, is there any particular time during a dispute, any stage? of a clinical negligence dispute where mediation should be thought of? Can it be before issue, after issue? Um, Increasingly, uh, I find that the mediations I do are happening um, before issue. I mean, broadly speaking, I've done just over over 45 mediations the last... in 2018 and 2019, and of those, 15 were Mm pre-issue, and four four of them were pre-CCMC. So it's. It, I have seen a trend of these coming earlier. I mean, partly, I dare say, it's to do with the fact that people begrudge funding £10,000 for a, uh, an well, issue fee. Yes. I mean, there's a big disincentive to So mediation's to cheaper than that, is well, it? <laughs> well, yes, I hope it would be. Um, and, and, uh, and, of course, there will always be some concern in a legal team about whether it's too early to settle a case and whether there's enough information in place. But honestly, particularly if there is a... I don't, I don't know whether you find that there's a, more of a trend to have split trials in cases where breach mm. and causation are the main issues rather than quantum... There really isn't any reason why breach and causation can't be debated much earlier than happens now. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and, and certainly I've had recent experience of, 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 of very big claims um, 
being settled before issue, um, either on a percentage basis or because the claimant so chose uh, at a reasonably substantial lump sum basis mm. because they wanted to conclude things. Mm. So, yeah, the, it ought to be considered. And the protocol actually makes it quite clear it ought to be considered yes. before issue. Yeah. And, and it has not been. And, and, and it is concerned to me that there seems to have been very little appetite amongst judges, uh, procedural judges, to actually say, why haven't you done something before you came issued and, and so on? I can't see why an awful lot of mediations couldn't um, help settlement be properly discussed before issue as a matter of course. Yeah. There will be occasionally cases where you can't do it. You certainly won't be able to do quantum in cerebral palsy cases um, in that time scale. But you could organise and you could negotiate a percentage um, deal through a mediation uh, if, if, if it turns out that it's the right deal. And, yeah. and you know, that's, but the, the facts on which you're going to base whether a CTG trace was or was not um, uh, indicative of trouble is not going to change between three and eight years after the event. <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and I'm strong, strongly of the view that people ought to try earlier than they do. But having said that, let me just talk through a bit of what happens in relation to a mediation mm. whenever it happens. I get to hear about it because the, the scheme I work with, which is set up by NHS Resolution, and they've got two independent contractors, Trust Mediation and, and CEDA, to supply clinical negligence mediators. So I get to hear from CEDA that this, who the parties are and who the solicitors are, and I will speak to the solicitors on the phone in at least 10 days, if I can, before a case. I'll get papers beforehand. I'll always offer to speak to the claimant personally on the phone, and indeed anyone on the defendant's side who wants to, whether a legal officer from a trust or even a clinician, not about the issues in the case, but just to explain to them what the mediation process is so they don't spend unnecessary sleepless nights worrying about what isn't, isn't going to happen at the mediation. Because it's an informal and a flexible process. They have, really have nothing to fear. and They can't mess up their case. So those conversations have proved to be really quite uh, well appreciated. When we get to the mediation, the, the normal setup is that each team will have a separate room. Uh, preferably soundproofed from each other <laughs> and that's one of the things I usually check out uh, and I have a room which is big enough to accommodate joint meetings of any combination of both teams I'll spend some time with each team in advance just pre helping them prepare for what is actually quite an important encounter when they gather to meet particularly if you've got a doctor and a patient there. I mean, sometimes they will not have met for five years and they will feel they have been at war in, throughout those five years, in mm -hmm. effect. Um, so that has to be handled very carefully and diplomatically, but I hope we can do that in, in, in a comfortable way. And indeed, they don't even need to meet. We can plan it in whatever way suits the parties. At that joint meeting when it takes place. People will sit around a fairly ordinary-looking table, usually in the solicitor's office or council's chambers, uh, sometimes on neutral ground, which really the, the, the preferred thing, but I'm relaxed about that now. It costs money to, to, to the highest independent premises. I'll say a few things about the fact that this is a confidential process, that n no one can damage their on-the-record case by anything they say to each other or any proposals they make if it doesn't settle. And they invite each team to have a conversation about where they want to from the day. And usually we find now that we deal with the human element first, you know, the apologies, the, the, the impact statements, the lessons learned stuff at that meeting without going any distance into the medico-legal issues. And very often we'll take a break after that and then 
I'll reconvene a joint meeting with the lawyers, which sometimes the lay clients come to, sometimes they don't. It's up to them. It's their case. For them to thrash out the issues between them as to where each side perceives the other's risks to lie. And then invite everyone to go off and have a think. And usually then people start sending signals to each other, sometimes in the form of bids, which will clearly move them away from their on-the-record stage of uh, statement as to where their case is. And, and that usually in generates a bidding process where people exchange offers, whether it be numbers or whether it be percentages. Um, and that will take an hour or two, that kind of process. Um, and... and, and on the whole, well, in fact, very substantially on the whole, that leads to a settlement. But, of course, uh, without me in any way strong-arming them, and may I underline this, without me giving any advice to anyone, um, each side will have their own legal team and they're responsible for the advice they give. I run the process. Mm. I will probably ask some awkward questions in private. So, and you might ask questions that would encourage some reflection mm. on whether the yeah. um an offer that's being suggested is you know, what's likely to be the response to yes. that offer where is it leading yep. you ask questions which I do and, and occasionally I'll ask you know, how will that play in front of the judge yeah. I mean I think the hardest question I ever, would ever dare ask is you know, how many times out of 10 is that going to wash in court yeah. uh, and, and but please don't give me an answer but have a think yeah. and uh, and it's for the legal team to decide how to advise their client and me for give them space to have a yeah. An unembarrassed and unwitnessed conversation yeah. about uh, about where that leads them. Just just so it, it's clear, there is there is a formal agreement that's entered into, isn't there, yes. of, of confidentiality That's and, right. and so on. So parties would sign, that's sign right. that. In terms of documents that are exchanged or, or before a mediation, you'd usually have a bundle of records and statements um, and I, expert well, reports. Or? Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. I would in a, in a case of breach of duty, I would want to see either, the, if it's pre-issue, letter of claim, letter of response, so sort of setting out the parameters of the dispute. It, it, um, usually people have not exchanged um, liability reports by the time a pre-issue mm. uh, mediation takes place, but they'll have condition and prognosis reports, which I usually see. If there are witness statements, I will see those, and particularly I will see a schedule and a counter-schedule, and each party you, or sometimes jointly produce a sort of mediation summary for me. Mm. Um, I don't actually need to wade through details of um, either medical records normally or or, or documents in support of special damage claims. Um, I, I'm not a decision maker, yeah. and so I don't actually need to know every corner and cranny of mm. every case. I need to understand it and I need to know where the issues are so that I can have a debate with people. Um, but very frequently... Um, at the mediation, it operates in a sort of from a helicopter view, as it were. People go general; they will debate individual heads of claim, but very usually we're talking in terms of global numbers and people taking responsibility within teams for how they reach a global mm. number that they propose to the other. Mm. It's, it's interesting to me that clearly you have experience of mediations pre-issue, which are which are successfully mediated, if if I could say that, but they. The parties come to a resolution, yes. even without having seen each other's expert reports yep. on liability. That's right. So that takes some imagination and commitment to the well, process. Yes. I mean, I think it? one of the good things about clinical negligence is one of the reasons where I think I can feel 
as relaxed as I do is actually there's a pretty high calibre of lawyer involved. It's, it's a relatively small sector. Um, the, the good claimant law firms float to the surface. Um, the defendant law firms are all panel appointed and, and vetted by NHS resolution. So, um, and, and the bar is a relatively small specialist bar. And, and that is tremendously important and, 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 and helps. Um, it's very rare for me to see barristers grandstanding because they often know their opponent and they know that it won't wash. And, um, and, and, and what you therefore do get is principled and um, sensible cooperative discussion where people say, yes, I know exactly where you're coming from on that point. You know, I know, I know where you are and I, you know where I am. And, 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 uh, and, and one doesn't have to spell out um, necessarily or thrust um, perceptions of risk down each other's throats because yeah. people know that the people are, are sensible and, and, and that makes an enormous difference to the way, to the effective way it develops intermediation. So I imagine, therefore, that at 95% of mediations, lawyers are present, whether it's solicitor or solicitor and yep. barrister. Yeah. The claimant would usually, or yes. claimant's family. And claimant, yes, I would always want yeah. a lay person to have a friend, whether, yeah. whether it be a, a spouse, a partner, or a friend, yeah. or a child, I mean, an adult child. Um, I, I had the exciting experience the other day of having a cerebral palsy claim where the claimant was there, mm. uh, and uh, age nine, he was wonderfully good. <laughs> not, not, not an orthodox uh, contribution, contributor right. to a mediation, but yeah. it, again, it made enormous impact upon yes. everyone that he was there. And I was, I was yeah. really, really thrilled that he was able to come. It doesn't yeah. often happen. Usually I will say to people, bring a picture of, yes. of, 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 of your son or daughter. But he was there. So that was good. Yeah. Yes. So what, what, about, what about on the defendant's, on the defendant's side? side? Do, the doctors who are directly involved in I, the alleged negligence? Or? That doesn't happen very often. I mean, so often in NHS claims, it's a systemic problem, and it's not just one mm. person who's in the frame. Uh, very pleased that mediation I did this week. Uh, the doctor was there, and and I said to him, uh, congratulations on coming, because it, that's a rarity. And I was able to say to him... Um, sometimes people forget the impact that, that, that having a claim made against you has on people like you and um, that there are sleepless nights involved there. Of course, it's not as bad as having someone inflicted with a, a serious um, loss of capacity or amenity as a result of a of, a, of, of clinical negligence, but nevertheless, it's a significant thing for a professional to have an allegation made against them, and for them to come and, as it were, face the music uh, in some sense is a brave thing to do, and I think is a worthwhile thing for them to do. And I would hope that, and casting my mind back on the relatively few occasions, there have been some where doctors have been there, that they have gone away feeling that unfinished business has been finished, mm. and that then they have appreciated that. But normally we'll have someone from the trust, uh, and I'm very keen that people from the trust do a good job in talking to the claimants because very frequently it's still the same NHS trust that they are living in the catchment of. And there is an inevitable continuing relationship between mm. all of us mm. and the NHS. Um, we, we, we all may need to call upon its services but at a drop of a hat. And, and if the way it has treated someone in the past has been 
less than perfect. Uh, sometimes there's a need to restore confidence in in those people uh, so that they can believe that if it does go anything goes wrong next time, it, it, they'll still be looked after. I've even had people who clearly thought they might be on a blacklist at their local trust because they'd made a complaint or a claim. And I've had uh, trust representatives firmly reassuring people and giving a card out, say, if you have any problems, please get in touch with me. Um, I, I, we have no wish to give you anything less than the best possible service. And, of course, that's the way they come uh, to clinical claims really i mean no one in the nhs actually wants there to be bad outcomes mm. um, it, it's unintended um, and 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 it's disappointing for them when things go wrong and what has been particularly striking in recent years is particularly the nhs resolutions safety and learning arm that it's not just the trust involved in the mediation that learns from something that learning can be spread throughout the nhs by um, the by the nhs resolutions trust uh, safety and learning arm um, and this i think also gives claimants some sense that uh, of a possibility of preventing things going wrong for other people, which yeah. is, is at some level satisfying for them. A difference between mediation and a joint settlement meeting yeah. or round table meeting is is that it does give a voice directly to those patients or their families yes. who who wish to use it. Yes. How, how often is that? So that at an opening session, how, how often do claimants themselves or their families wish to say something directly to the defendant? I can't give you a statistic, but I, it's extremely rare, and I am always slightly wonder whether they're being sheltered by their legal team, mm. that they don't come into a joint meeting yes. and have the opportunity. And if they're there, I will always turn to them and say, is there anything you'd like to add? And sometimes they say no, and then they hear something, and then suddenly they burst into song, as it were. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think it's really, really important. I mean, yeah. RTMs were invented before I, um, um, after I left private practice, so I've never been to one. But um, I, my impression has always been that they are occasions where they are where the senior lawyer on each side as it were runs runs it somehow without anyone taking off their shoulders the responsibility for the process which is what i can add to 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 a discussion with with lay clients sort of kept apart on the whole and reported back to I think that's disappointing um, for for people. I think mediation does offer a, a better experience for people and opportunities for them which that kind of approach doesn't give. And, and, and if one believes the research, they want these non-monetary benefits, both in terms of participation in the process and in terms of what is actually a term of settlement sometimes, uh, you know, going back in, talking about the paperwork in a department, meeting doctors to satisfy themselves that things have changed. You know, that just isn't going to arise in a, in, in a roundtable meeting. And uh, who pays for a mediation? Well, if, if there is a settlement, if there... Yeah, uh, under the under the NHS uh, under the scheme. NHS resolution mm. scheme, um, there are certain circumstances, and I should probably forget exactly what they are, uh, in which um, NHS resolution will pay for the mediator. Mm. Um, if they have admitted breach, certainly they will not 
that they will pay for the mediator and, and, and the defendants and the claimants team will not have to contribute to the cost. If it's a disputed case, then then it will be the mediation fee, which is a set and not over onerous fee, it's a great deal less than the issue fee that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, will be split, but it it, it is of course um, a cost in the case. So uh, if a settlement emerges, then the the half that NHS resolution didn't pay will be payable uh, on on the standard basis costs uh, as of the outcome. So it'll only be if it doesn't settle um, and it was always shared in the first place that it'll remain at large. And each side is obviously responsible for their own lawyer's fees under the usual funding arrangements. Mm. And what's the evidence as to what the proportion of mediations that result in resolution? Well, uh, NHS resolution published figures, uh, have have published figures on the roughly 500 that they've done uh, at the moment. They they reckon that uh, 75% settle on or shortly after the day. I would hope that I could achieve a slightly higher settlement rate. I reckon about about seventy five percent of mine settle on the day, and that and, and that almost all the others settle relatively quickly thereafter. But I mean, that's it, it's not me. I hope it's not me pressing people into settlements that they don't want. I certainly um, tell them that that's not my job. Um, it may just be that settlement is proves to be that much more attractive to people once they are confronted with the possibility of it, and then within a process that makes it achievable. Um, certainly, it's it, it, it's. It, I, I claim the fact that some of my mediations don't settle because it proves I'm not strong, strong arming <laughs> people, which I would much rather feel is the case. It's up to the parties entirely, and it's not me pressing them to settle. I hope. Yeah, and is that sort of rate? if I can call it a success yeah. rate, does that apply equally to pre-issue mediation? Yes, I see yeah. no distinction between um, rates. I mean, it's sometimes slightly more difficult pre-issue, but actually I've been very surprised um, how regularly pre-issue cases have ha- have, have settled. Mm. I mean, I, I, I could certainly work it out, but it's... Uh, I don't really detect any 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 greater um, um, difficulty in in parties yeah. achieving settlement on pre-issue cases than post-issue cases. I mean, of course, post-issue there's much more evidence in place. I mean, but it, it got to the point where the other day I was quite surprised to have the joint experts' um, agenda and, and and answers. Um, I haven't had those, that for a long time mm. <laughs> at a mediation now, uh, and that that's because it's got a long long way down the line and it's just before a full trial. I, I, with 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 the caliber of lawyers on both sides who are able to take a view and clearly do take a view when they haven't seen each other's um, liability reports and they're going to read between the lines of the particulars of claim and defence or the letter of claim and letter of response, uh, it doesn't need to take, you don't need to go that far down the line. Mm. And actually, truth of the matter is, quite a lot of clients would really quite like to bring it to an end as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And I feel quite embarrassed about cases which are five, seven, eight years old. So it's one way, anyway, of saving a lot of money in legal costs, as well as all the stress that goes with a dispute continuing for that length of time. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, mediation was always invented in across the board and we've had non-family civil mediation in this country since about 1990 when CEDA was founded in ADR group uh, around about that time um, was invented as it were or imported from the states and Australia in order to 
try to give people better and quicker and therefore less costly outcomes to to, to litigation. Mm. Um, yes, I, 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 but I would still rather claim for mediation it's a better process rather yeah. than necessarily it saves money. Okay. I mean, I, I think it does, and yeah. and, and actually. It's not always. I mean, there are some cases that are almost impossible to settle, and 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 so, for instance, like uh, um, best interest cases for children, like the Charlie Gard case. Um, there, it's very. You go into a mediation of that kind, and I've done some, where you think to yourself, well, how can a parent or a family possibly reach an agreement with this hospital? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the view taken by Mr. Justice Francis in the judgments in Charlie Gard that he's published was. We really ought to have mediations of this kind of case, you know, every, every time, because we. Uh, he, he didn't put it quite like this. We, he, as a judge who's got to make that ghastly life or death decision at the end of the day, wants to feel that no stone has been left unturned, and and I think with the mediation process, it makes it possible for people to have conversations which they would otherwise find difficult to have entirely frankly. And, and and in the cases that I have done of that kind, senior clinicians have talked to the family very openly and frankly and painfully um, for a number of hours. And, 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 and if I had been asked by the judge who eventually decided that case, did you have a really good exchange? Do, does everyone really understand what the situation is as a result of that mediation? I think I could say yes. I think yeah. I could claim that. Yeah. Tony, thank you very much for those insights and for taking part in this podcast. Uh, the CEDA website is cedar.com, C-E-D-R.com, and this and other debrief podcasts are available on the King's Chambers website at www.kingschambers.com. Just go to the Resources and Training tab and click on Podcasts, and you can obtain fact sheets on each episode by emailing podcast at kingschambers.com. Thank you and goodbye.